Everybody's going for those kinky boots, kinky boots. Kinky boots, it's a manly kind of fashion that you borrowed from the brutes. Borrowed from the brutes. Kinky boots. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to Kinky Boots. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this week we are reviewing Series 1, Episode 24 of The Avengers. It's The Deadly Air. This was written by Lester Powell. It was recorded on the 4th of October 1961 and transmitted on the 16th of December 1961 at 10pm in the ABC Midlands, North, Anglia TV, ATV, Southern Television, Time Tees, Television Western Wales, Ulster, Westwood, Border and Grampian regions. It's another one of the lost episodes. We've done all the surviving ones now. Uh, There is a video reconstruction done by Alan and Alice Hayes, and that's on the Studio Canal Complete Series box set. There's an audio reconstruction in the Big Finish Lost Episodes, Volume 7, and that's by John Dorney, which is adapted from the script by Lester Powell. And I think was the last of the Big Finish adaptations to be recorded. Oh, I don't know. I've not got the production details of Big Finish, but uh, there isn't actually a script for this one. Uh, As with several that we've had so far, it's done from scrapbooks and anecdotes and production details and synopses. So it's not a straight adaptation, but they're quite good at this, a Big Finish. There are 98 publicity stills and there are 78 telesnaps. Dr. Axton, do you have a plot synopsis for us? I do. Again, taken from Dave Rogers' book, The Ultimate Avengers. When several experiments with a new vaccine go wrong, Steed and Dr. Keel volunteer for the next test. One of the scientists, Dr. Henegar, appears to be sabotaging the project, and a potent airborne virus nearly kills the Avengers. As Keel in- interrogates Dr. Henegar for the truth, Steed is discovering that Dr. Craxton is the real mastermind. He wants to discredit the vaccine so he can sell it suitably disguised elsewhere. Craxton, meanwhile, has it trapped Steed in the test room, taped a file of the deadly virus to the intake fan and set it in motion. Rescued by Keel, Steed is convinced that Craxton has fatally poisoned him until it is revealed that the lethal vaccine has been replaced by tap water as a security measure. Good man. Evening, Professor Coswood. Progress seems satisfactory. I just thought I'd double-check that you had the correct storage settings. Of course. We don't want any mishaps at this stage. They're all down here. Hmm. Temperature correct. Pressure correct. Yes, all seems in order. Good work. They'll be safe with me. You can be sure about that. Oh, I can well imagine. I'll pop them away and see you in the morning. Excellent. Good night, Hennigup. Good night, sir. Let's see now. Temperature. Yes, everything seems to be in order. Now, I have a list of uh, little factoids, and this is taken from Piers Johnson's splendid website, Mrs. Peel, Were Needed. I can heartily recommend this. It's full to the brim with little details about... Uh, it looks like all of the episodes of The Avengers, New Avengers, and lots of other little things as well. But apparently, this uh, the script for this has a lot in common with Lester Powell's earlier script called Night of the Plague. And that was for... And I forget the name of the series. It was a Canadian series that ran in the late 50s. 
but that also had Patrick McNee in the cast and Sidney Newman was uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Company's head of drama at the time that that was produced. This was the highest rated episode of the first series, being watched by over 5 million households and also the first episode to be in the national top 10 of TV broadcasts. There's significant gaps in the actual paperwork for this episode. So although there's research uh, and there's a list here of of other publications, Two Against the Underworld, um, The Ultimate Avengers, which you've got a copy right in front of us, there's no concrete recording date. Between the various publications, there are conflicting dates as to when people think there are recording dates. Based on when others were verified to have been recorded, uh, Piers Johnson thinks that 4th of October is the most likely date with this uh, this episode to have been recorded in line with the last four episodes being recorded on Wednesdays. So again, it really is a splendid website. As they go, the work that must have got into this, I salute you, sir. This is, it's a brilliant, brilliant facility. But first of all, before we get into the episode itself, Dr. Axton, any alumni? Um, we do have quite a few, actually, um, and quite a number of Doctor Who alumni. John Stratton was Shokai in The Two Doctors. He also played Captain Potter in the TV version of The Great Mass in the Pit and was a Series 2 regular in It's Dark Outside. Geoffrey Belden was Organon in Creature from the Pit. Uh, he was the leading cat weasel and played the regular character of the Crowman in the John Pertwee Wurzel Gummidge series. He also cropped up in Space 1999, The Tomorrow People. We'll see him once more in The Avengers. And he was in the 1952 version of Nigel Neal's Arrow to the Heart. Keith Anderson played Robespierre in The Reign of Terror and uh, also appeared in The Big Pool and the Out of This World episode, Imposter, which, if not the only is one of very, very few television adaptations of a Philip K. Dick series. Oh, right. So the, do androids dream of electric sheep? That's the fella. Anne Bell was a regular in Tenko, one of the regular presenters of Jack and Ori, appears in the 1960-odd version of Strindberg's Ghost Sonata, and played the title role of Jane Eyre in the 1963 adaptation. Alan Cuthbertson will uh, appear in three more episodes of The Avengers. He also appears in uh, The Fellows and Edge of Darkness. Michael Hawkins was General Williams in Frontier in Space. He was a regular in R3 and appeared in a couple of episodes of Doomwatch and will reappear three times in The Avengers. And Cyril Renison we will see once more in The Avengers and was a background artist in two episodes of Quatermass 2. So We've had a few Quatermass crossovers over the uh, the course of this. No, it was only a few years earlier. Yes, I know, but there's still quite a surprising number of people that were in it that have cropped up in the alumni list. Moving on to the episode itself. Now, this is very much your area, because uh, apart from the fact that you are actually a, a doubly doctored medic, it's, it's very much your, your passion. I'm going to let you take the lead on this, really, because what did you think of it? As a story or as a piece of immunology? Because as a piece of immunology, it's rubbish. I, I thought um, it might be something. Um, yes. You vaccinate somebody, it takes at least two weeks before you can see any changes because that's just the way the immune system works. Now, to be fair, in 1960, they probably wouldn't have known anything like the amount that we know about vaccination science now. Mm. And um, I think they would probably have still been using live vaccines. Well, it's only so. But I don't actually know because I wasn't working in immunology in 1960, so I don't know what level of science there was. But what, what I have to say is at no point, I don't think, would you have done an experiment and expected a result immediately? And also, 
testing vaccines on guinea pigs is going to tell you nothing about how the human immune system will respond to it. But again, possibly of its time or possibly somebody at Big Finish not knowing as much about immunology as I do. And things I used to do it for a living, then... There's, uh, a, there's a possibility, but... Um, the... And that's why, dear Big Finish, scientific advisors are your friends. <laughs> it stops you fucking things up. When it comes to Doctor Who, there's a little bit of a precedent, both on... On uh, and off screen for exactly. scientific advisors. While we're talking Look about on. science and science research, there is no way on earth any scientist would agree to another scientist experimenting on themselves. It has happened, and quite famously, it happened in the 1980s with an Australian scientist called Barry Marshall, who was convinced that stomach ulcers were a result of infection. Oh, he's the one who swallowed a stomach ulcer, isn't he? Yep, and then developed a stomach ulcer within about three or four days and cured it with antibiotics and proved his own own thought and won a, a Nobel Prize for it. But he did that off his own bat. Had he gone to his boss and said, I really want to do this, no amount of persuasion would have got his boss to say yes. Why? It's massively unethical. But why is it unethical to experiment on yourself? I mean, it's not like you're putting um, somebody else in danger, is that's it? That's not the unethical bit. It's the senior supervising the research agreeing ah, right, to, exp- to unauthorised experimentation on a human subject, which is why with Dr. Marshall, it unorthodox, but kind of acceptable, because he just went ahead and did it, and the only person who was putting it at risk was himself. Mm with, and I can't remember the name of the character, arguing in front of his entire team that he should be allowed to do this? The answer would be absolutely not. And he must know, he would have known that going into it. So if he was desperate to do it, he would he would have just gone and done it off his own bat. That was a little bit unrealistic, but it, it did give some good arguments. Mentioning the Iron Lung, to me, sounded really old-fashioned. Mm. Um, but thinking about it... it was 60 years ago. And I, I, I went and read up on iron lungs as a result of that. I mean, I, I know how an iron mm. lung works. And I thought they were sort of phased out in the, the 1950s, and they kind of were. But then I realised this is 1961. It's not actually terribly far outside mm. that. And what I didn't realise, as of just a few years ago, there were still people in the world in iron lungs. And there was um, a woman in Australia who's in her 80s who's been in an iron lung since she was pre-teenage. Are they the big tube thing? Yes. Just for the benefit, because I've seen it, but I've only ever seen them in dramas. How do they work? It's negative pressure ventilation. So it, it's a sealed unit. Yeah. And you suck the air out of the out of the lung, so you reduce the pressure. The whole way that lungs work is that they expand and yeah. contract, depending on what the pressure is inside them. So when you want to blow air out, you push the um, the diaphragm, the big flap of muscle that it rests on. You push that in increases the pressure in the lung, blows air out to equalise the pressure with atmospheric pressure. What you're effectively doing is making that pressure change, but from the outside of the lung. The lung expands to fill that pressure, it pulls air in. You then put the pressure in the uh, iron lung back to normal, the pressure drops down, the air is uh, expelled from the lung. So you get a, a breathing cycle. It sounds terribly comfortable. I mean, you have to lie flat. And so the poor woman in Australia will have been lying flat for How long did you 60 say? odd years. 60 years. Kill me. But that's a re- as a result of a big polio outbreak. In, uh, there was a big polio outbreak in the 1950s. There was talk about bringing Ireland's lungs back um, at the height of the 
COVID pandemic. Because what we do now, rather than using negative pressure ventilation, we use positive pressure ventilation. The air seal in an iron lung is around the neck. If you put a tube down somebody's throat and into the, the trachea, so the, the, the single tube that leads into the lung, and you put an air seal on it, you can then push and release and push and release. Through a tube rather a tube. than a, a so that, huge... That, that's positive internal pressure rather than negative external pressure. Gotcha. problem with that is that you have to be sedated. So basically, uh, an iron lung is a, a giant vacuum pump. It's a giant vacuum chamber, part of which will be a pump. Moving on. Moving on. It's quite an entertaining little story. It, rattled, it really rattled along. Some of the scientists became a little bit interchangeable. Yeah. The, the bloke with, who was affecting the lisp got very annoying very quickly. Um, <laughs> and for all we were saying last, certainly we were talking about in the, the toy trap where the voices were, had similar accents to make them pretty much interchangeable and how much better it would have worked with a regional accent. They seem to have taken that on board, but instead of giving somebody a regional accent, they've given him a speech impediment, which probably not the casting choice that would be done nowadays, even though it was being done in, by the modern casting director. The traitors were remarkably inept. Even before they showed their hand, they were they were uncovered very quickly because they were the only people who hadn't been attacked. Mm. Or the, the bloke behind it was the only person who hadn't been attacked, and they'd... Um, the henchman had, had been attacked, but a bit half-heartedly. The first moment of accusation, it was you. Oh, yes, it was me. Um, <laughs> that is true, yes. To be fair, at the time, one of them has got Steve locked in a, uh, in, in the testing room and is moo-hoo-ha-ha trying to kill him. Um, and the the other one is threatening some, some poor old bloke with a knife. So they, they're kind of damned by their actions at that point. But they were pretty inept. There also doesn't seem to be any recognition of peer review in science and the fact that... <laughs> I was wondering whether you'd bring that up. You, you can't suddenly turn up with the, look, I have a magic vaccine. Well, you, you can, but nobody's going to actually take any notice of you. It's sort of, okay, well, prove your point. Where's your lab results? Okay, interesting lab results. Where were these done? Oh, they were done in my backyard. <laughs> How come they have Joe Bloggs Research uh, Laboratory stamped on the top? I stole the paper. It, 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 that bit just doesn't make sense. Um, science doesn't work that way and didn't work that way in the 1960s. Peer review is there for a reason and this is the reason. It was an early example of quite a common storyline that we'll come on to later in the Avengers and particularly in Kathy Gale's era, the traitor and research, research establishment that they have to go in and identify is quite a, a, a common storyline. And we, we've, we've already seen it. We have already seen it. We've seen it in Death in yes. a Although this is possibly a little more typical of that style of story. Well, I was going to say that we've seen a lot of elements of this story already in the first series. We've had the nightmare was a drug, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, And then we had, what was it? It was one for the mortuary. That was all to do with a formula that everyone was tripping over themselves to use and weaponize. And that was all outside the lab, but this is all inside the lab. I mean, it's difficult to... I can't pick it apart. There's only so many story ideas to go around. I just wasn't particularly gripped by this. I have to say that the the audio realisation of the the threat in the, in the testing room really didn't come across with an awful lot of menace. Mm. I'm not convinced it's 
the greatest, even if the original script did exist, I'm not convinced it would be the greatest story in the world. I knew that you would pick it apart on a, a scientific level, because even I could see the holes in it, um, and you're, you've got an intimate knowledge of it. Yeah, but I've got an intimate knowledge of the way that that science is 60 years later. So that is a little bit unfair. Mm. I'm, I'm going to be charitable to Big Finish and saying they were taking into account the lack of knowledge of immunology that people had in in the early 1960s, um, rather than just they didn't bother checking any of this. There is no excuse for not knowing about how peer review science works. And with not having a script to work from, you can't blame that on the original writer. No, but I was. I know that uh, when we did Tunnel of Fear, you were because I didn't have a script. The big finished version was that was written as an original piece. I didn't actually think it deviated that far from the. And uh, no, I, I thought uh, having seen the TV episode first, even though John Dorney himself had said, you know, when when they turned right, I turned left quite a few times during the script. I didn't think it was a million miles off, considering he was effectively writing blind based on fragments. It wasn't a million miles off. Um, I did think it was quite a long way off, and I actually think the Big Finish version is a better story than the televised Mm. version. I also don't think that is likely to be true for every story. There Mm. will be some stories where the Big Finish will have had some corners ironed out, and bear in mind, the the Avengers production team were chucking one of these out a week. Mm. Big Finish have ages and ages to uh, to fine tune and uh, and story edit and, and make sure that they're well, it took them six years to do series one so but but i'm I'm still in in awe really of adapting something with no script based on anecdotes fragments synopses and and scant reminiscences about something that was you know 50 odd years in the past at yeah. the point it was recorded so you can't get an exact mm. replication of what went before and sometimes They'll do it better. Sometimes they'll they'll do it worse. Sometimes they'll get it absolutely spot on. But I must admit that is one brief I would... I've not been racing to take on. You're adapting something that there isn't a script for. Go away and... I think I think John Dorn is the, the... He was the range editor for it. But even so, it's a big ask to adapt something based on the barest shreds of what's left from 60 years ago. And I think they've done a good job mm. of it in pretty much all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, actually, yeah. I think they've done a good job of it, of it in all of them. Mm. There's been there's been a, a couple that I've not been wildly keen on. I mean, Ashes of Roses. But Ashes of Roses was from an existing script, Yes, it was, it? yeah. Uh, and again, I'll say this uh, over and over. I think that it's a brave decision by Big Finish to... Stick to the scripts as closely as... They, uh, there's been minimal changes to the original scripts, and they'd, they'd already said that they, they weren't going to fiddle about with it. They were going to do as as faithful an adaptation for audio as they could based on the original scripts. Which was brilliant. And I, Errors and all. I really wish they'd do that for other shows, so... Adam Adamant's the one that leaps to mind. I wish they'd have done it for that. If they'd done straight this this style of adaptation for Adam Adamant... I'd have been right in there. Yeah. I mean, you've heard the Adam and Adam. I've heard the first 20 minutes, half an hour of the first one. I really struggled with it. I had to, I turned it off because I just wasn't engaged at all. I heard all of it and it doesn't get any better. That was a real slog. Yeah. And the actors were doing a good job. Um, it's obviously down to the production decisions and the way they decided to go with that range. And I think, I think it's very telling that of, of all the big finish ranges, it's the one where nothing else has happened with it. 
At some point, we're going to have to do that for an oral intercourse oh, podcast episode. God, do we? we do have to do that. Yes, we've got to take the rough with the smooth. We can't. They can't all be dust breeding and genocide machine. We'll have to do some of the others as well. Yeah, sometimes it gets to be the Lovecraft invasion. Yes, moving swiftly on. Yes, just one final thing. The, right, the thing right at the very end, and I appreciate it was a, a little nod to the future because it was the the end of the first series recording and almost the end of the Dr. Keel. He, he does turn up once more, but because it was the last of their recording block, the very end bit where uh, Steed says, Dr. Keel, we're needed, did not work. Really disjointing. It was it was harking forward to the Mrs. Mrs. Peel, Peel we're needed. Um, and that was a Mrs. Peel thing. It wasn't done with Kathy Gale. It wasn't done with Tara King. It was purely Mrs. Peel, and it just did not work. Um, I, uh, I mean, you've, you're coming at this from a, 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 a much more fan angle than I am, because yes. I, you know this intimately, and I'm basically coming to the vast, vast majority of these fresh. Mm. I thought it was a nice little kiss to the future. It was harmless. It was throwaway. I can see why it would piss you off or, or not sit right with you. But it was an opportunity to do it. They've taken it. I actually, that, I thought it was nice, but I can understand why it would be irritating to somebody who's much more familiar with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I really didn't like that bit at all. Should we rate this in Masterminds? I'm going to let you go first. This was much more a you episode than a me episode. What do you think? It was okay. The science was ropey, but 1960s television science is ropey compared to what we do do now. So I'm not going to criticise it on that too much, although the underlying plot about just taking research and selling it somewhere somewhere else doesn't make an awful lot of sense. But that's it, part of the synopsis that mm. we're working from. So so that that's kind of one of the things that they, they had to incorporate. It, I didn't find it massively engaging, even though the, the plot crackles along. Again, we have a strong female character where as soon as Steed turns up, just becomes an, another background victim slash decoration. Masterminds? Three. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to concur with this. I Oh, my concentration was wavering massively all the way through this. I think a lot of it's got to do with there's a lot of characters in there. Lots of them are interchangeable. I mean, what the fuck was that on Manny Padme Hum character? Uh, Cat Weasel, uh, uh, Jeffrey Belden in the original. Mm. Just why? Um, well, I, I mean, there was a comic I, relief, but why? I, I actually, I actually quite liked his character because it was a taste of the eccentrics that you've come to find in later, <laughs> later episodes of the, the Avengers. But also, one thing that you do. Um, both as a scientist and as a as a medic, if things aren't going the way that you think, you ask a second opinion. You go to you go to a subject expert. You go to somebody who knows what they're talking about and say, "What do you think about this?" Yes, I think it was the whole you know Choji Campo and Pasha sort of thing that they did. Um, oh God, if that puts you off, you are going to have some difficult times with some of the later episodes. It just it just jarred a little bit for me. Um, I thought it was a nice bit of whimsy that struck out against the tedium. Of the I was going to say it's going to be the Avengers uh, going forward. I've seen some of the latest of the uh, Avengers, and this is a a running theme. Uh, I just was not engaged by it. I think the the most striking thing was that neither of the Avengers got ill. You know, everybody's running around, uh, basically infecting or threatening or killing off other people. 
and Stephen Keel are there in the thick of it and somehow manage not to, despite all the the um, the germ, you know, chemical warfare going on, they're, they're not affected by it. They somehow manage to escape and that just seemed a little bit... Clearly that was the plot back in the 60s, but I just, I was... I was semi-bored by this. It's, yeah. it's not a bad one. It's just dull. And the other thing is, when they, when they first go into the lab um, and Steve's saying, do I have to put all this protective equipment on? Oh, yes, you have to have your whites and everything. Oh, don't worry. We don't need to bother with a mask. And <laughs> with, the, with the two years we've all just been through, that, that, that really stood out. Yeah, it just, it, it's not one I'll be racing back to. Um, again, no disrespect for, to Big Finish. You, you've done, again, I am in awe of the ones that don't have a script. I've got to admit that it's not, that's not a brief I would be, uh, I would relish if that landed on my desk right that. Uh, but no, not a classic, I'm afraid. So on that note, we shall sign off. Next week, we shall be looking at episode 25, A Change of Bait. So until then... Stay the course with us. Thank you. It's uh, oh, it's lovely to have our our listeners are we've got a quite a healthy listenership now, and it's very it's very gratifying. Thank you all, and thank you for your feedback. We've had several people comment, and uh, a notable mention to Kenny Smith, who is you keep a, an eye on the podcast, and I know that you're you're interested in the Avengers. And it's nice to it's nice to have your feedback, sir. Uh, who also does a splendid podcast called Pieces of Eighth, all about the Eighth Doctor Who. But until next time, thank you very much. We shall be back soon. Bye now. They'll be back. You can depend on it. Kinky Boots featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. With thanks to Studio Canal, Big Finish Productions and Alan Hayes. Title music was performed by Honor Blackman and Patrick McNee. And the program was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.